Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. You will be blessed when you come in the blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant you the uh, the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee in se- from you in seven. The Lord will send you a blessing on your barns and and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless uh, you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands on the Lord your God and walk in the obedience to him, then all the peoples on earth will give will see that you are called by the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant and prosperity and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to you your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens in the storehouse of his bounty to send the rain on your hand in session season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will le- you will lend to many nations but borrow from none. The Lord will make you the her- the head not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Thank you very much. Today's message is entitled High Stakes, and we're taking that word directly from the gambling world. Aren't you glad we're tying in the gambling world to the message this morning? Stakes is a word that means the amount of prize money you win on a bet. And we use that term a lot of times in our life for high-stakes decisions or high-stakes tests. So if you've ever gone to college or if you're going to go to college someday, you know that the SAT and ACT are high-stakes tests. A lot of how much you get for scholarship is based upon how well you do on that test. And a lot of times we know we've made high-stakes decisions where we feel like we could win it all or lose it all, right? I want to invite you today to... Either place your bet or reaffirm your bet on where you will land and what the Bible teaches is one of the most important decisions we have to make in life. In fact, the Bible teaches it's also one of the most deceptive areas of decisions that we need to make in our life. It's a really, truly high-stakes decision. In fact, this decision is talked about explicitly in the Bible 2,162 times now. I'm trusting somebody else who counted that. I don't have the patience to sit and count to 2,162. That's not me. Somebody else who has nothing to do with better with their day did that counting. But what's the amazing part is that in comparison, some of the major themes of the Bible, like belief or believing, is only talked about 272 times. Prayer is only talked about explicitly 371 times. In fact, the biggie, love, is only used, that word is only used 714 times in the Bible. This issue is such a high stakes, such an important biblical issue that it's talked about three times more 
than the word love in the Bible. And that issue is how we deal with our money and what money means to us and how it impacts and affects our lives. We know this is a big deal, right? I mean, we spend most of our week working for it. I mean, right? We spend most of our effort, most of our stress, most of our worry in life is centered around having enough or not having enough and fear associated with money. Many of our fights in marriage, in fact, the second leading cause of divorce is about this issue of how we think about how our hearts react to money in our lives. Some of you may be saying, oh, no, another message on giving. Well, I actually did count this. In my sermon, I only have today seven sentences on giving, okay? I, I can count to seven. That, that's not too, too, too big of a number. I want to start today where God starts in outlining the stakes he's asking us to bet on and the decision he's asking us to make and the promise that he wants us to realize in this. If we were to paraphrase the text that Emily read earlier and just put it in common language, what God is basically saying to us is if you will bet on me, if you will go all in with me, if you will trust that I have the best intentions in mind for you when it comes to security and money and wealth in your life, then it says in verse 3, you will be blessed everywhere you go. In verse 4, it says your family will be blessed and your business will be blessed and your finances will be blessed. Verse 5, it says you will never have to worry about food. Verse 6 says you will be blessed in everything you do. Verse 7 says you will not be able to be defeated by your enemies. And verse 8 kind of goes on and says, oh, and did I tell you, I'm going to bless your business and your land and your finances and all that you do. Verse 9, it says kind of come on, go go all in with me because if you do, verse 10, you will have a stellar reputation that people will look at you over that reputation and be in awe. Verse 11, and it says, and by the way, did I tell you, you will be abundantly prosperous in your business, in your finances, in your security, in your home. Verse 12, it's kind of like God is saying, are you listening? I want to pour out a blessing and prosperity on ways, on you in ways that you can't even dream. So much so that you will always have enough. In fact, you will never have to ever charge anything or borrow any money again because you will be the one people will be coming to to borrow money from. And verse 13 says, If you go all in with me, you will be the head and not the tail, leading from the front instead of grasping, just trying to make it from behind in life. And God's invitation to all of us, myself included today, is simple. Will you choose to believe that. And if you choose to believe God's intent is good towards you in that, will you then choose to act like you believe it and obey Him? And what He says is good wisdom in the way we think about money, the way we operate, spend, save, and do our business in life. See, in one sense, it's, it's an invitation that's really fun and easy to give. God is saying... Do you want to have more prosperity in your life than you have at this point that you are now experiencing? I mean, I feel like I feel kind of weird and obvious making that invitation. I mean, I'm just basically asking you, do you want to be more prosperous? And the answer is kind of like, well, duh, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be? Now, some of you may be thinking, that maybe a few of you are thinking, well, prosperity isn't all about wealth. Sure, it's not. 
And you're maybe thinking, we don't want to go down the road of prosperity preachers and all that stuff. And no, I don't want to go down some of the abuses that have been in the line of that. But can I just interrupt that objection that's going on in your mind? Even that thought about prosperity is more than just money at the moment. Can I interrupt that and say, didn't the Scripture just spend a lot of time talking about your business flourishing, about wealth, and the fact that he wants you to experience the promise of feeling secure and well cared for financially? I mean, that's what the Scripture just said. And the promise of wealth is not just isolated to this passage. It's all throughout Scripture. Proverbs 8.18 says this, With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance, leaves the abundance, leaves the extra, leaves the wealth, not just to their children, but to their children's children, their grandchildren. Jesus talks about God's desire to bring us, bring us multiplication in all areas of our life, including wealth, through things like the parable of the talents and the parable of the sower. But he's very explicit about money being something he wants to see us prosper in in Luke 6, where it says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And Paul Later on in the Bible, talking specifically about giving and money, says this in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way. So you can be generous on every occasion. And through you, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, for those of you who are counting, we've already finished three of the seven sentences on giving. We're almost over halfway through those sentences. But the question is, are we willing to trust God's intent and His commands? And are we willing to go all in with our bet on this highest of stakes game of life and wealth and see that how following God's teachings on how we think about it, how our hearts react to it, can indeed bring greater wealth to every single one of us than what we are currently experiencing. You know, I'm assuming that most of us here in many areas, some if not many areas of our lives, have our lives oriented around good, solid biblical wisdom and wealth. But I'm also assuming that every single one of us has areas of our lives, including myself, that are not aligned there. And that if we learn to align our hearts and our actions even more with God, we will experience greater blessing than we are experiencing greater wealth in greater measure than we are experiencing right now. To set the stage... Uh, to talk more about what God has to say about this. And specifically, I want to actually go back now to a famous short story. It's a famous short story by Leo Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? In this story, the main character's name is Pahom. And Pahom is sitting in his hut one night after work, and he's a peasant farmer, and his wife is there, and his sister, who's the wife of a city tradesman, is there visiting with her. And the the, the wives are having an argument over which life is better to live. They're arguing, is it better to be a peasant farmer, or is it better to be a city tradesman? 
And as he's listening, Pahom listens to his wife make, make an argument that is really compelling to him, that he ends up agreeing with. And she says to, the, to her sister, who's a city tradesman, he says, if your husband loses his job, you have nothing. You could lose your entire house. But if things go bad for us, we still have our land and we still have a food source to survive. And life is better as a peasant farmer. And Pahom's sitting there relaxing over by the fire, listening, and he kind of agrees with that. And he, but he thinks in his head, he thinks, I can, I, I, yeah, that's true. But I think I would be happier, though, if I owned my own land. Shortly after, the owner of the land that Pahom had the rights to work was getting old, and she decided to sell, which put in jeopardy his ability to continue to work the land. So he went to her and went to some other people and arranged to be able to get a loan and pay her and buy the 40 acres he had been working most of his adult life. He works really hard over the next couple of years and pays off the loan and, and he's walking through his fields and he just, he's so happy. He just looks at the sky. The sky is bluer. The grass is greener. The flowers are prettier. And he's just so happy because it's, it's his. It's such beautiful, such a beautiful thing to have it be your own. He's content. But for the nuisance, of a few of the neighboring peasant farmers who let their stray cows or sheep wander into his corn or his fields or they wander over on his land. And, and that becomes frustrating enough that Pahom thinks, well, I need to do something. I can't keep overlooking these trespasses. I have to set things right and teach them a lesson. Otherwise, they're going to destroy everything I have. And one day, he's walking through his land, and he's walking through the grove, and all of a sudden, he walks into the middle of it, and there's a whole bunch of trees, not just one or two, but a, a whole bunch of trees that have been harvested by someone, and he doesn't know who it would be. But he f- figures out, he thinks he knows who, who it is, and so he sues him. He takes him to court. But he loses because he doesn't have enough evidence. And Pahom is so furious that somebody would violate his own stuff like that. So Pahom at that time was listening and there were other people around him who were moving to new parts, lands that were just being settled where land grants were being made and he decides to sell his property and move his family 300 miles. He goes there and he gets his 25-acre land grant and he takes the money he earned from selling his property. He buys various pieces of disconnected property, whatever he can buy as close as he can, but they're not all together around. And he ends up with 125 acres and Pahom is so excited. He goes, now I have enough land. I can be, I can be happy in the hustle and bustle of building the buildings on the different properties and hiring servants to farm the land. It's all very exciting and he's just so satisfied. But when all the hustle and bustle of that's done and everything built and the farms are operating well, Pahom kind of begins to look around and he goes, wouldn't it be nice to be like one of those farmers who have all their land together in one parcel? That would be so wonderful because then I could build a nice one big home right in the center of it and I'd have more land and it would all be together and life would be so easy and so beautiful. So he again begins to begin looking for land. And one day he runs across another peasant farmer who had 1,300 acres, but he had gotten himself in financial difficulty, was needing to sell. So they sat down. They haggled over what they thought would be a, pre- a fair price. And Pahom walks away trying to go get things in line so he can actually make the deal official and close on the deal. But on the way, he runs into a dealer who is back from a distant land 
And he sits down and talks with him. And the, and the gentleman says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm buying 1,300 acres for X amount of dollars. And he says, oh, where I just came from, I bought 13,000 acres for the same amount of land among the barbarians a number of days away, weeks of drive, weeks walk away. The home questioned the dealer. What, 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 what did one have to do to buy such a vast amount of land? And the dealer looks at him and says, all you need to do is you need to meet the chief of the barbarians. You need to bring him a gift and you need to drink with him and then he will offer you a question of what do you want. So Pahom and his servant travel the weeks down the road. They come to the barbarians' land. They meet the chief. They wine and dine him and they give him gifts and the chief finally turns to him and says, what can I do for you? And Pahom answered, I would like to buy land from you. And the chief responds and says, we would surely love to sell you as much land as you would desire. And Pahom can't hardly believe it. He looks at him and says, well, how much do you want for acre? And the chief says, no, 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 no. no. We don't do things that way. What we do is if tomorrow morning you meet me on the top of this big hill just outside of town here, you come before dawn, you put the money that you have to buy land in my hat, and then you start walking and we'll give you a shovel and you just mark the land every so often to mark what your land is. And he says, here's the deal. We'll give you one day to walk. If you walk as much as you want, but you have to come back to the hat before sunset. If you get back before sunset, all that you've walked around is yours. If you don't get back before sunset, you lose everything. And the money is mine and you don't get any land. The home, I mean, what an opportunity. He's so excited. He can hardly sleep. He gets up early. He goes up to the top of the hill, waits there for the chief. The chief shows up before dawn, sets his hat out. He puts his money in. And just as the sun begins to rise above the horizon, Pahom starts to walk, stopping every couple hundred yards and just digging a hole and marking the land. He's just so excited. The, the land is so amazing. It's got meadows and streams and prairie that's great for wheat and wood and forests and it's got everything one could ever dream of and he's walking in a straight line and as the morning sun begins to come up and get kind of a little bit up in the sky he decides oh i better make my first turn so he makes his first turn and he continues to walk and, and he walks until the sun's straight above him and he goes well maybe i should just as he's thinking he should make his next turn he walks and crests the hill and he sees this beautiful, amazing meadow with this wooded land beyond it. It's the best land he's seen all day. And he goes, I can just make it past that woods and then I'll turn. I'm doing well. I can do that. So he continues on, gets past the woods, and he makes his turn. And for the first time, he begins to think, man, it's getting late. I need to hurry if I'm going to make it back before sunset. So instead of turning and going square, he decides, I'm going to head straight back. After all, this triangle piece of land is going to be plenty. I've got more than enough land, more than I could ever dream of. It's going to be great. And as he's walking back, he just begins to tire as the day goes on. And the sun's getting lower, and he gets more anxious and more anxious, and he pushes himself harder, begins to run as much as he can with the heaving of his chest and the burning of his legs. He just pushes himself and pushes himself, becoming more and more fearful that he's not going to make it before sunset. And just as the bottom of the sun touches the top of the horizon, he makes it to the bottom of the hill where he started. 
And he looks at it and goes, I've got to make it up there before the top of the sun goes down. And he, he, he stumbles, he crawls, he claws his way to the top of the hill. And as he crests the top of the hill, he sees about a 100 yards or so in the distance, the chief sitting there laughing and cheering him on, saying, go. And he just looks, he gets the last ounce of energy and stumbles. And just as he's almost there, he stumbles and he falls and he reaches out and his hand touches the hat just one second before the sun goes below the horizon. And the chief looks at him and goes, Ah, this is a fine man. He has plenty of land. What a great man this is. He has gained so much. And Bahom's servant came running to him and tried to raise him. But as he turns him over, he sees blood flowing from his mouth. And Pahom is dead. The servant picks up his shovel. He digs a grave for him. About six feet from head to toe is it about all the land this man needed. How much land does a man need is a profound story that touches both the reason why we don't become happy and wealthy and it also touches the reason why we don't often trust God with the way we operate in business and our finances and follow His commands. You see, while Jesus' desire is for us to prosper and grow in wealth, Jesus also recognizes that there's a major reason why we don't experience it. And He alludes to that region. actually talks about it pretty explicitly in Mark 4.19 where He says, the deceitfulness of wealth is so huge. You see, Holmes' story is a story not so much of greed... It's a story of avarice. It's a story of the universal effect of sin and the deceitfulness of wealth on every single human heart. Now, few of us would identify ourselves and few of us would even identify most of the people we know as greedy, right? But all of us struggle with avarice. Now, for those of you who got perfect scores on your SAT English portions and ACT English portions, you don't need me to define it, but I wasn't that smart. I needed to define it for myself because I don't know what avarice meant. But before I define it for you, I want to illustrate it a little bit more through some stories. How many of you remember your first car? You remember your first car? This is my first car. It was a luxury 1970 Chrysler Newport Custom hardtop with cloth seats and air conditioning. All you guys who are too young, it was really cool in 1970 to have air conditioning. A lot of people didn't have it in their cars. That's how far we've come, right? This, my car, was almost exactly like this. It was a really dark navy green. We used to refer to it as a big enough car that if you put a turret on the top, it would be a tank. And it was built like one. This car had a 387 high compression engine and it would get up and go. I actually made it 15 miles in 10 minutes one time. All for the purposes of not forfeiting a summer league basketball game that I had to be there by a certain amount of time. And it was really stupid for me to do that. Kids don't do that, but I did that. That was it. By the time I got the car and I became the owner of the car, it was 1984 and I was a senior in college. And the car was on its second engine. And I had to check the oil more than I had to check the gas. I never left home without at least two or three quarts of oil in the trunk because it leaked so much oil. 
The thermostat, whole thermostat system for the heat and the air conditioning had gone out, and we couldn't find anything uh, to replace it. So a farmer friend of mine helped me redo the plumbing underneath the hood of the car so that we put in a brass water valve that allowed you to turn the heat on and off, which meant, if you're following me well, in the winter... When, the, when it's cold out and you want heat, the only way to change the level of heat in the car was to stop the car, open the hood, put on a thick leather glove because that brass valve, if the car had been running, was now between two and 300 degrees and you would turn the valve one way or another. So, me being a smart person, I quickly discerned that the best way to regulate heat in the winter was when the winter season started, just turn it on full blast and if you're too hot, open the windows. So I'm driving home for Christmas. It's snowing out. It's zero degrees. I'm driving with my windows open, and I'm getting everybody driving by me going, what are you, crazy? (laughs) Right? And the AC was out, and so summers in Oklahoma, where I was living at the time, when it was 105 degrees out, you can imagine how blistering hot that car was with no air conditioning. And, oh, did I tell you? that the week, the year before I got it, my mom, I bought it from my parents, my mom backed out of the driveway in front of a school bus. And we never repaired that. The back quarter panel was still dented to the very dying day of that car. You could still see the yellow school bus paint just embedded in the car. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful car. And I actually didn't move up too much by the time I got to my third car. My third car, if you took the floor mats out, you could it was so rusted you could watch the pavement go by underneath your feet. But they were paid for. They were great. They helped me earn money. They, they, they ran most of the time and got me where I needed to go. Students and parents, here's a question. What are your expectations for an acceptable first car? What are your expectations for a second car that would be acceptable for you to have that you wouldn't be embarrassed to drive? What are your expectations for an ongoing car in life? Now, I love having a good, nice, reliable car, so hang with me for the point. Avarice. There's a common saying uh, that we all hear, uh, whatever size home you have, you will grow to fit it and overflow it. If you've moved several times in your life, you know that statement to be true, right? The uh, National Association of Home Builders keeps track of the average size of home and all sorts of statistics. From 1950, the average size home in America was 983 square feet. By 1970, the average size home was 1,400 square feet. By 2009, the average size home in America was 2,700 square feet. All the while, while the average size of household decreased from 3.37 people in a 983-square-foot home to 2.5 people on average in a 2,700-square-foot home. Fewer people, more room. You see, in the 1950s, it wasn't even thought twice of that it was healthy, good, normal to have two or three kids sharing one small room in a home that had one bathroom. Avarice. You know, uh, my wife and I are not currently actively looking, but we had been looking for a while and just found it too difficult to uh, do at the moment. But we were looking to downsize. And as we were looking to downsize, looking at homes for a while, we um, 
We saw a number of homes that were going into foreclosure, and it always amazed me that you could go buy a home that was going into foreclosure and see a almost brand new $40,000 car sitting in the driveway. Avarice is an insatiable desire for more, to get more. And when we get it, it doesn't satisfy us. And when we get it, what we've got becomes the new norm. And we need bigger, better, more, nicer the next time around. And we keep getting more and the norm keeps adjusting higher. The Hebrew word for money is actually kesef. And it's from the word to desire, to languish after something. Its meaning is actually not unlike what we would define today as addiction and an incurable thirst that is never satisfied. So our question that I ask myself and ask all of us today is, what is your relationship with money? Have you ever struggled with not having enough? Have you ever struggled with having too much? And even when you have money, do you worry about it? See, all those questions lead us to the core questions of today's message is, Is pursuing all the wealth and the stuff, what's the cost you're paying for that right now? The stuff you have. And what will that cost be in the future, in the end? See, the main point of today's message is simply this. If we don't understand money, and if we don't recognize the deceit of each of our own hearts when it comes to how we think and believe about money and what it does for us and how much we need and what we need and the norms of life, if we don't fully believe God desires to prosper us now and therefore don't fully obey His wisdom in business and finances if we don't grasp all those things, then no matter how much or how little we have, we will never be wealthy, we will never be happy, nor content, nor ever experience the tremendous joy God wants to bring to our hearts because of being able to be so generous to others. And see, dealing with that tension that avarice that so infects us is a daily challenge. It'll be a daily challenge the rest of all of our lives because of the ease with which money and what it means to us taints our hearts and our life. You see, my life like yours is checkered with with moments when I made great biblically financial sound wise decisions and I've reaped blessing and there's also been moments where I succumbed to avarice and made unwise, foolish decisions in my life. Now, the point of all this is I'm not against having nice cars. I'm not against having bigger houses. I don't think the Bible is either. But here's the problem. Many of us have those things, and they aren't making us more wealthy by having them. Because wealth is not the things that we have around us. It's the things we own. It's how much money we have after all of our debts are paid. And because we don't keep our hearts in check, because we succumb to avarice in our own lives and don't trust God, these are just some sample examples of what's happening to us as Americans. This chart actually shows the household monthly savings rate for a number of different countries around the world. The United States is the bottom line. 
over the last number of years, our personal household savings that we are putting away each month has significantly decreased to almost zero. In fact, one month it went, one month it went below zero for the first time ever in the history of the United States when they're tracking it. And notice that there are many countries as well that are experiencing some decline, but a number of them are higher than us. And the reality is we would like to blame the fact that we're not saving more on our economy. But the reality of that statement is as well that some of those countries that are still doing very well have been in equally bad, if not worse, economies than we are. It's avarice. So not only are we not saving, because saving is a part of it, and Proverbs 21.20 says this pointedly. It says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. More plainly stated, what that proverb is saying is the wise man saves stores up for the future, but the foolish man spends, uses up all of whatever they get. And the reality of our lives as Americans right now is that we not only use up all that we get, but the next chart shows us that over the past 20 years, the level of debt we've taken on as middle-class Americans has more than doubled. So not only are we not using up all that we get, but we are using more than what we get on the whole, living beyond our means, worshiping what the dollars can bring to us in terms of how it makes us feel or whether we like the beauty of it or not or the status and the identity it brings to us rather than worshiping God. Proverbs 22.7 warns us, it says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The slave of the lender as one who owes another person. The first scripture we read today, God promises if we follow his ways, we will not borrow from anyone, but instead be the ones who lend to others. But we still go on. Even the credit card debt in the last 40 years has gone from 1.4 billion credit card debt to 2007. That's a lot. Even in the last 10 years, it's gone up 75% in credit card debt in the last 10 years. And, you know, I'm not here to debate today the fine intricacies of debt-leveraged wealth. A lot of us, you know, we can know the stories of people who have leveraged debt to build a great business. We can read the stories of the people who have leveraged debt to build wealth through real estate. But I can also tell, but what I'd really like to focus on is, is this. I've got a lot of friends who have done that. I have one friend who was successful at, at the real estate side of it enough that, that he was on the national speaking circuit making thousands of dollars a day just to come and speak to people to teach him what he was doing. And he was actually one of the more conservative ones. He was one of these guys who actually held a ton more cash in reserve to weather down times than almost anybody else out there speaking and writing on the topic. And yet I watched him lose his million-dollar home and all that he owned and move his family into renting a starter home and trying to start over in middle age. And I have to ask myself the question, and I think we should all ask ourselves the question, is that the kind of wealth God wants to bring to us? Is that the promise God wants in our lives of feeling well provided for, secure, and at peace? 
Proverbs 10.22 says this is the kind of blessing God wants to give. The blessing the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Are we really wealthy and prosperous if we do not have peace? Are we really wealthy and prosperous if there's even a thought in the back of our minds that we could potentially lose it all because we've got so much debt if the economy goes south, if we lose our job, if our business goes down? Is that really the wealth God wants us to have? There was a study a number of years ago on the top 5% income earners in America. And that study came out and said this. It said that 80% of the top 5% income earners, so we're talking about the wealthiest people as far as annual income in in the nation. 80% of those people, it said, were two weeks away from bankruptcy if they lost their job and their income income stream stopped. Is that the kind of peace and wealth that God wants to bring into our lives? Psalm 37:21 says this, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives grace and, 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 and gives. And recent history with the easing of the laws of bankruptcy and the increased frequency of people filing bankruptcy, you have to conclude that we as Americans are becoming an increasingly foolish and wicked nation. Now, that statement could really hurt some people. I realize that because some of you have filed bankruptcy. I don't have time to talk about all, all of what Scripture says about forgiveness of debts and, and mercy in times of need and things like that. I don't have time to go into that. But the reality of that point stands to a large extent in our culture today. Um, Dr. Daniel Bell, uh, recently deceased, Longtime Henry Ford II professor of social science at Harvard, in his writing and his thinking, highlights the fact that the loss of biblical wisdom of work and money in our culture is the most alarming, destructive economic factor in the U.S. today. He writes, The single greatest engine in the destruction of biblical wisdom of work and money was the invention of the installment plan or instant credit. Previously, one had to save in order to buy but with credit cards one could hedonistically indulge in instant gratification. In his famous discourse on money, Jesus in Matthew 6, 19-34 says this in the middle of it. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And then he says why. The reason why he says that is because we cannot serve two masters, he says. And the point that he's trying to make is that the power of money is so powerful in all of our hearts that it so easily enslaves or compels us to a false way of identifying contentment, security, and our identity and success. And we can't underestimate the power. He refers to it as a master. And it's an either-or decision. And Jesus says the first step The first step in that same context of him talking about that, in taming that beast in all of our lives, of being all in, of placing our bet and saying, we're going to align our heart with you. The first step is to rethink the way we think about wealth and instead to say, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven by giving generously to God's work. Because he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Today, I'm asking all of us one primary thing. 
And it's a really high-stakes choice. There's a lot on the line for this one. Will you trust God's intent? And then will you act like you trust it by obeying his intent? That he wants to bring wealth without sorrow to all of us. And I want to invite you to two steps if you say yes to that. The first step is, I don't care where you're at financially. Maybe you feel like you're doing great. Maybe you'll feel like you're in the dumps. But I want to invite you, if you say yes to that, to do Financial Peace University. Because in Financial Peace University, you're going to learn more details about biblical wisdom about finances that can bring wealth without sorrow. And they're going to talk about practical ways that are consistent with that wisdom that you can act today in your marriage, in your family, in your life to be there. And the other aspect that I want to unashamedly say is I want you to align your heart with God by doing what Jesus says is the first step. If you don't give, if this is your local church or you go to another church, if you don't give to your church, then I'm asking you to start giving and take a step to align your heart with God. If you're here and you give, but you don't give 10% of your income to your church or, or this church or another church, the Bible repeatedly talks about that as something that he wants us to do then I'm asking you to begin giving more and take steps to align your heart to God. Because if we don't align our heart to God, if we don't serve Him as a master, we will serve money as a master. And why do I want this? Do I want it just because I'm a pastor and I want your money? No, I want it because God says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands... The Lord your God will bless you in the city and in the country. Everywhere you go, you will be blessed. The Lord will send blessings on your barns, your business, everything you put your hand to. He says, if you do this, then all the peoples of the earth, because of our peace, because of our wealth, because of our loving generosity, will respect you, you who are called by the Lord's name. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. You will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. That doesn't sound like our nation, does it? You will lend to many nations, but borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you fully trust God's intent, the Scripture tells us, and fully obey God, you will always be at the head of the line for opportunity and never at the back of the line. Let's pray. Lord, this is a big issue for us. It really does involve so much of our lives. And I know that I have personally followed you and I've also personally failed to follow you. And I think everyone here could say the same. Lord, I ask that you'd come to us now, that you would speak to each and every one of us right where we're at as to the next step you want us to take. To align our hearts with you to trust your good intent, your generous, your outrageously generous intent towards us. And to then also choose to act like we trust it and obey you. And Lord, I ask that you would make us into wealthy, the most generous, giving, kind people who live life free of the worry of money because we follow you We trust you, we save, we give, we live the way you want us to. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.